afternoon to all our listeners this is Radio Maria and this afternoon it's time for catechesis we have our dear friend and collaborator volunteer live here to talk to us this afternoon continuing his focus on the Jubilee and today it's focusing on the Eucharist so we have here live the man himself Mr. Derek Williams. Hello, Derek. Good afternoon, Eddie. Uh, good afternoon, listeners. We're looking at Eucharist today in the light of the Passover, if all goes well. And I'll give a little bit of information about Jubilee as well. Shall I carry on, Eddie? Yes, please. What we'll do, we're, as usual, we'll let you roll for a good 15, 20 minutes or so. And then I'll open up the phone lines and we'll have a little music break. So if any of our listeners would like to phone in, ask Derek a question or just compliment him on his... Uh, vast knowledge and skill the number to dial is 01223 375564 that's 01223 375564 over to you Derek okay afternoon listeners um so before I crack on with the Eucharist um, the pressure is on for me to reveal some secrets of Jubilee and I've had one or two inquiries about what's jubilee derek what does it mean and you know normally i'd wait until we get to that particular week which would be about seven or eight weeks down the road chapter six of the workbook so here's a little something what what jubilee is the word itself comes from a hebrew word yobel and it literally translates as ram's horn that's what jubilee means that's that's where the word jubilee comes from ram's horn now in israel the ram's horn is called the shofar but that's like the name of it so it'd be like the equivalent would be like um let's say we've got a piano called a yamaha or a guitar called a fender but the ram's horn is called the shofar okay so the ram's horn is what the jubilee is all about so um because it's it's the word so when you say Jubilee in Hebrew, you're saying Yobel, you translate that into English, it means ram's horn. So it's quite literally, you're saying a ram's horn year when you say a Jubilee year. Or if you're saying a year of Jubilee, you're literally saying a year of the ram's horn. A strange old, a strange old sequence of words, I appreciate that. Well, I didn't write the Bible, so it's not my fault. Um, but this is the way the Hebrew language would work. Now, how 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 does this jubilee year work? Well, you have this sequence of feasts every single year: Passover to Pentecost to Tabernacles. Every year, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. Sabbath after Sabbath after Sabbath after Sabbath. It goes on for seven years. When you get a Sabbath year, and then you do seven times Sabbath years. And in the on the Feast of Atonement, in the forty ninth year, the high priest blows the shofar the ram's horn, the Yobel. And at that point, the ram's horn year begins. Now, I'm not going to give away too much more about it because we're going to keep some secrets for that appropriate time and there's a bit, a bit of studying to do. But basically, if you're asking, what is a jubilee? That's what a jubilee is. And at the point of the priest sounding the shofar, the ram's horn, the Yobel, at the point of that sound, Several things immediately happen in Israel. 
and Jesus himself sounded a jubilee because Jesus is effectively the ram and he sounds his horn and I'm not going to go on too much more though because I want to save some surprises for when we actually get to the particular week when we study the the Yobel, the actual jubilee and not forget this is a this is a as it were a build-up you know so we're looking at the different feasts before we get to the year of jubilee we're looking at the passover the passover links in with the eucharist so we're doing the eucharist this week and maybe next week then we're going to be looking at pentecost and a study of the holy spirit what's known as pneumatology the study of the breath and then moving on from that, we're going to be studying the Feast of Tabernacles and uh, a study of our Heavenly Father, a bit of theology. Um, and then we'll get on to Jubilee. So we're looking at each week, we're looking at Jewish feasts and how they fit in with our feasts as Catholics. So hopefully that will, um, as it were, give you a little bit of a carrot to just keep you interested. So this is from uh, my workbook on Jubilee called the Eucharist. And this is the first part. This is from the Catechism. The Eucharist is the source and summit of the Christian life. The other sacraments and indeed all ecclesiastical ministries and works of the Apostolate are bound up with the Eucharist and are oriented towards it. For in the Blessed Eucharist is contained the whole spiritual good of the Church, namely Christ himself, our Pasch. That's Catechism, Article 1324. So, the Eucharist source and summit of the Christian life. That means that the Eucharist is the source and summit of all of our evangelization. The Eucharist is the source and summit of our interiority. The Eucharist is the source and summit of our ministries all ecclesiastical ministries all works of the apostolate are bound up in it eucharist is the source and summit of the pro-life movement the eucharist will be the source and summit of all missionary outreach um or it should be okay it should be sadly it isn't always the case pope john paul ii himself um spoke to missionaries many years ago and said that when you're doing missionary work in whatever country it is Christ should be at the center of your missionary work. And it's not always the case that it is like that, but it should be. If, our fruit, if we want to bear fruit in the works we do in our apostolate, then it, they need to be Eucharistic. The Eucharist must be the source and summit of all of our apostolate work, apostolic work. Okay. Um, now, these are some names for the sacrament of the Eucharist. First of all, the Eucharist, so called because it is an action of thanksgiving to God. The word Eucharista means thanks. The Greek words Eucharistine and Eulogine recall the Jewish blessings that proclaim God's works of creation, redemption, and sanctification. Okay. So you have these names for the Eucharist the Lord's Supper, we all know that one, the breaking of bread, the Eucharistic assembly. The memorial of the Lord's passion and resurrection, the holy and divine liturgy, holy communion, and finally, holy mass, Missa. And that comes from Catechism Articles 1328 to 1332. Now, in Luke's Gospel, when Jesus is preparing for the Last Supper in Luke 22, 
It tells us that the feasts of Passover and unleavened bread were drawing near. So last week we looked at Passover and I think we touched on the feast of unleavened bread when the people will eat bread with the leaven removed for seven days. Um, and we might say that the two seem separate, but they're not. They're strongly linked, same as Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Christmas Day and the Epiphany, there's all connected strongly together. Okay, they're all part of the same season. And the disciples in Luke 22 are sent to prepare the Passover meal in a certain room, which is the upper room, which is the same room that the apostles will receive the fire of Pentecost in seven weeks later. You might seem that I'm digressing a bit, but no, because um, Easter, when we receive, you know, we receive the Eucharist on Monday, Thursday for the first time ever. That's when Jesus at his last supper gives us his Eucharist. And that the celebration of Easter might begin at Easter, but it concludes at Pentecost. So once again, the two things are linked, and we need to we need to remember that these things are all connected together. Now Jesus says to his disciples in Luke twenty two verse fifteen, "I have longed to celebrate this Passover with you." Bearing in mind, I think Jesus was thirty three at this point, and therefore he has effectively been involved in thirty three Passovers in his life. But this one, he has longed to celebrate with his disciples. Why? Because this is the one which heralds his giving his body and blood for the salvation of mankind. And I just ask you to bear in mind that when when Jesus or the Logos gave the instructions to the Jews for the Passover before they left Egypt, Jesus would have known that the, the lamb that they ate in haste and the blood that they put on the doorposts and the lintel were merely a symbol, a foreshadowing of the flesh that he would give as the Lamb of God a thousand years later, and the blood that would be splattered onto the horizontal beam and the vertical beam of the cross. And we have to remember that Jesus, as the third person of the Trinity, is fully Yahweh just as the Father is fully Yahweh, and the Holy Spirit is fully Yahweh. So they're all fully God. And just as Jesus set Israel free from slavery in Egypt, way back before the time, at the time of Moses, so now he wants to set, or he sets um, humanity from its slavery to sin, both via the same meal, both via the Passover meal. Okay, so what we have at Mass was first given as part of the Passover meal. Now, the scriptures tell us that Jesus gave thanks and he wrote and he and he spoke a blessing. Okay, and I want you to tell you what that blessing is because it doesn't actually tell us in the scriptures, but the blessing is a traditional Passover blessing. So are you ready for some Hebrew? Here we go. Baruch Ata Adonai, Eloheinu Melech Haolam, Hamotzi Lachem Min Haaretz. 
Now, I know you all understood perfectly well what I mean, because you're all are Hebrew scholars out there. But for those of you who are not, <laughs> here's the translation. So, Baruch Atta Adonai, blessed are you, Lord. Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, our God and King, the Eternal. Amotzilachem Min Haaretz, the bread you bring forth from the earth. Beautiful language. And here's some of the, a little bit more on, of meat on the bones for you with regards to this, right? So Adonai, the word Adonai, Lord, actually is a plural. It really means lords. It, if you were to have the singular Adon, that's the, that is Lord, that means singular. But the word Adonai, interestingly enough, actually means my lords, plural, personal. Plural and personal. Then we have this other beautiful word, um, Haolam. Olam. So the word Haolam, uh, the eternal one, this goes back to the time of Abraham. And it's not in every Bible. It's around, Abraham, it's around chapter 15 of the book of Genesis. I haven't got the exact scripture reference on me now. But Abraham invokes the name of God, the eternal one. So um God the Hel El Olam. And um that's about one of the few places that I can actually find it in sacred scriptures. So that's, that's certainly the first one. So there's a there's a you know there's the link with the Passover all the way back to Abraham. Okay. And then we have Hamotzi Lechem Min Haaretz. Lechem. And you see Lechem means bread. And think in terms of Bethlehem which in Hebrew is Beit Lechem, house of bread. Yeah, house of bread. And I just like to make these connections because sometimes we'll hear, hear the language of Hebrew and we want to always draw connections with the obvious things that we already know. Um, so I just wanted to bring these things to mind. Now, according to Jewish tradition, once this blessing has been prayed, nothing else is said until the bread is consumed so jesus speaks the words of blessing followed by the words of transubstantiation and then complete silence until the apostles have eaten so the apostles are eating at that supper the flesh and blood the flesh of jesus um, and it's worth noting in the in the last supper which is meant to be a passover meal there is no mention made of the meat of the lamb this is because the bread becomes the meat of the lamb the bread itself becomes the flesh of jesus and the catechism says when jesus when we say when the priest says this is my body in persona christi this word transforms the things offered okay so it's the word which changes bread into flesh wine into blood okay the word spoken and it's always worth remembering that during the eucharistic prayer the priest is not acting as himself he's acting in persona christi have you ever noticed that when the bishop is celebrating mass he gets to the holy 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 and he removes the the small cap off his head it's because he's no longer acting when he has the cap on He's acting as the servant of God, but when he takes the cap off, he's acting in persona Christi. He's no longer acting as the servant, he's acting as the person.
I just want to say very briefly, I shouldn't intervene here, but we had, we had Bishop Peter here today in the studio, our new bishop for East Anglia, and he did a program, and then he celebrated Mass. And at that point, where you've just said, he took off his hat. You go, now you know why. Now I know why. Great. Hopes. All right. Well, it make, comes to life, AD. It does. It does. Yeah, it all makes sense because, um, like I said, he was with us here in the studio. We're very blessed and privileged to have him um, for the morning and uh, part of the afternoon. And at that point, yep, he took off his red cap and uh, became persona Christ, as you said. Yeah, he becomes the person of Christ. He's acting in the person of Christ according to his ordination. All right, there, there we go. go. Well, sense. that even interrupted me. We should really have a song. Have you got one ready? I, I couldn't. Res I couldn't resist that one because it was so fresh in my mind. So, all right, that it was. <laughs> so the number is oh one two two three three seven five five six four. If you'd like to phone up and ask a question or have one of your curiosities confirmed, and in the meantime, we have Charles of the Mystics. And Tange Lingue.
This is Radio Maria. A very warm welcome back to our catechesis slot. We've been listening to talk on the Jubilee and in specifically the Eucharist given by our dear friend here. That's Derek Williams. And this is part two. So, Derek, thank you for a very first, an interesting, very first half of your talk. So um, can't wait to hear what you have to say to us next. Yeah, let's get on with it, shall we? Mm. So... And then, so we looked at just then at the bishop taking his cap off and he acts in the person of Christ, just as uh, every priest will act as the person of Christ at that point in the Mass. Um, and um, the Catechism tells us about the Eucharist, the body and blood, together with the soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore the whole Christ is truly, really and substantially contained. Okay. Now, let me just explain this for a bit. There's a word we use, a really flashy word called transubstantiation. <laughs> so somebody, somebody might be thinking, well, what does that mean anyway? Um, well, we have this thing in, there is this thing in philosophy called accidents and substance. So let's imagine you have bread, just a loaf of bread, any type of bread, right? The bread, the actual bread itself, that is the substance. The fact that the bread can be white or brown or black, because you can actually have um, a poor man's bread, barley bread, can be black, or you can have it um, toasted or what have you. So let's see accidents, the colour, the taste, the texture. This is the accidents, the outward appearance. It, underneath the, the outward appearance, you have the substance which doesn't change. The, the accidents can change, the substance doesn't. It's the same with wine. With wine, you can have red wine, white wine, rosé wine. You can have it. So you can change the colour, you can change the taste, 
but the substance is always wine. All right. With the Eucharist, the opposite happens by a miracle. The accidents remain. You still have the bread, you still have the wine, you still have the accidents. But now the substance, you saw you you have the sorry, no, you have the forgive me. You still have the accidents in terms of the outward appearance. The colour hasn't changed. The texture hasn't changed. The taste hasn't changed. So these are the outward appearances, the accidents. But the substance, it is no longer bread, it is now flesh. It is no longer wine, it is now blood. So it's actually reversed our normal thinking of how things operate. And this is something the church spent a considerable amount of time trying to understand. And it used, this is an interesting scenario, used the language of the Greek philosophers in order to understand um, Christian doctrine. So Plato, Aristotle, St. Augustine, St. Thomas Aquinas, St. Augustine, the, the church fathers, they use this language to help us to understand our faith, which is amazing how God can bring all these things together. And this is from one of the early church fathers. This is St. Cyril of Jerusalem. So remember, this teaching goes back to the, to the foundations of the church. So it's not something that the church in the 20th century decided was going to happen, or the church in the 21st century. This goes back throughout the whole history of the Catholic Church. Since he himself declared and said of the bread, this is my body, who shall dare to doubt any longer? And since he him, has himself affirmed and said, this is my blood, who shall ever hesitate, saying that is not his blood? So with full assurance, let us partake of the body and blood of Christ. For given to you in the figure of bread is his body, and in the figure of wine his blood, that you, by partaking of the body and blood of Christ, may be made of the same body and the same blood with him. So, and you get that in several of the church fathers, not just Cyril of Jerusalem, several of the church fathers and church councils will explain and keep on going over the importance of the Eucharist. And it's, it's interesting that since the Reformation 500 years ago, the one thing that has been under, well, one of the things that's been under attack all the time is the Eucharist. Um, and the fact that this is both Catholic and the Orthodox Church um, believe in the full Eucharist. In, in other churches, there's a bit of confusion over the exact teaching. But in our church, in the Catholic Church, the teaching has been firm. This is the body and blood of the Lord. And we must understand that when we receive it, which means we must receive it reverently. Okay. Now, how to receive communion? Um, how to receive communion worthily? Dodgy statement to make. You cannot receive communion worthily. Okay. Because before you receive it, you say the prayer. Lord, I am not worthy to receive you. Even if you went to confession, just before Mass, you are not worthy to receive the body and blood of Christ. Lord, I am not worthy to receive you. But only say the word and my soul shall be healed. So we need to learn that there are some things that we can never do worthily, but that God gives us as a free gift. And the Eucharist is given as gift. And therefore we receive the Eucharist. What does the church recommend we do? Well, obviously examination of conscience which happens at the start of Mass, 
obviously giving glory to God, which happens after the examination of conscience. Then the hearing of the word, the hearing of the word forms us to receive the word in his flesh and blood. And then there's the Eucharistic prayer where we participate. We hear the words of the priest and we participate in that Eucharistic theology, as it were, and those prayers. When we go forward to receive communion, what we should do is either a bow before the priest before we receive communion or to kneel down and to receive communion. In some parts of the world, you can only receive communion on the tongue. I know that because, for example, in Portugal, uh, the priest will perform what's known as intinction. He will put dip the Eucharist into the blood and then he'll place it on the tongue. And it's only appropriate you receive on the tongue in that circumstance. And um, in our culture, we don't do intinction. And so you're, you're, the bishops have allowed us to receive communion on the tongue or in the hand. Many, many arguments about this, but I'm not going to go into them because they seem to be pointless arguments sometimes. And um, so Jesus tells his disciples that they are to drink from the cup, which is his blood, and they are to eat of his flesh and partake. And this brings him brings life to the believer. So Jesus says, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you live in me and I live in you and you will have eternal life. Now, here's a few things about the Eucharist, okay? The principal fruit of receiving the Eucharist in Holy Communion is an intimate union with Christ Jesus. His life and resurrection are conferred on whoever receives him. So when we receive the Eucharist, we are receiving the resurrection life of Christ. And that for as Catholics is very important because often we as Catholics can focus on the death of Christ. And we're slightly different to our Eastern Orthodox brothers and sisters. They focus on his resurrection. Their focus is on divinization and the resurrection. Ours is on his passion and death. But Pope Francis has encouraged us to focus more on the resurrection and to proclaim Jesus is alive a little bit more often. And that's what the Eucharist should be doing for us. Then we have um, this other article from the Catechism. What material food produces in our bodily life, Holy Communion wonderfully achieves in our spiritual life. Communion with the flesh of the risen Christ, a flesh giving life and life, giving life and giving life through the Holy Spirit, preserves increases and renews the life of grace received at baptism. So think about that statement. When you receive the Eucharist, the communion that you're receiving, which is the flesh of the risen Christ, preserves, increases and renews the life of grace that you received when you were first baptized. So we can often look back to our baptism and think it was a historical event, it's all over and done with, etc. But no, the grace of baptism can be increased, renewed, and preserved every single time we receive the Eucharist. Who knew that? Yeah, me too. Just learning something new as well. Here's some more things about the Eucharist. There's a lot of meat here, folks. You're going to want to listen to the recording. Okay. When you receive the Eucharist in a state of grace, okay, and I, I, I say that because you know, we can make assumptions, but the confession cues are empty. 
and therefore you have to ask how often are people going. So when we receive the Eucharist in a state of grace, which comes through regular confession, we are united temporarily, but perfectly to Christ. Catechism, Article 1391. As I said earlier, preserves, increases, and renews the life of grace within us. Catechism, Article 1392. The Eucharist separates us from sin. Catechism 1393. Now you might say, hold on a minute, that can't be the case. We need to go to confession. Not, you don't have to go to confession for venial sin. And I'm not going to open up a can of worms here, folks. So don't, <laughs> don't do that to me, all right? Um, if you've got mortal sin, if you've committed a mortal sin, you need to go to confession before you can receive communion, if possible. Okay. If you've only, if you haven't committed mortal sin, but there's a few venial sins that you're aware of, you can still receive the Eucharist, and it removes the, the venial sin. Okay. So you are set free from venial sin, but. The doctors of the church on the spiritual life and the teaching of the church on the spiritual life invites you to confess your venial sins, even though it isn't essential, it is beneficial. All right? Hope that all makes sense. The Eucharist strengthens our charity, Catechism Article 1394. The Eucharist helps to preserve us from mortal sin, Catechism 1395. If you're having a battle and struggling with temptation, receive the Eucharist and it will strengthen you. I think it was St. Augustine who said that the Eucharist is medicine for the sick, as did Francis de Sales. So they both recommended frequent reception of Holy Communion. Oh, for the record, in former centuries, um, frequent reception of the Holy Eucharist was rare. It was often you would do a spiritual communion. One of the reforms of Vatican II was to strongly encourage more regular, more frequent reception of Holy Communion. And they did that in accordance with the renewal of the liturgy. Um, so if you're, you know, one of the great benefits of the Novus Ordo Mass is that we are encouraged now to receive communion as often as possible. The Eucharist fulfills according to unity by uniting us all in one body, Catechism Article 1396. Now, that's an interesting one because you would think that sometimes the Eucharist can be a source of division because we Catholics can receive it, the Orthodox can receive it. But when we're talking about the body and blood of Jesus, some of the denominations, if, if someone from another denomination comes to the Catholic Church, they can't receive the Eucharist if they're not Catholics. That's really very important. And that's where we need to defend the Eucharist, because if we have people in our church who come and want to receive the Eucharist, even though they're deeply committed Christians, the fact is they're not in communion with the church. That's very important. If they're not in, commu in full communion with the Catholic Church, then they should not receive communion in the Catholic Church. Um, it's a very simple thing, really. Um, the com communion is the source and summit, it's the high point of our faith. And therefore, only if you're a confirmed Catholic should you receive Holy Communion. Okay, That's very, very important for us to understand. And I remember someone once talking about this to me at church, um, at a conference, and they were complaining about, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a committed Christian from another denomination, I can't remember which one, they says, why can't I receive the Eucharist and I'm a committed Christian? And I says, well, you're not a Catholic. And they says, well, I really want to receive it. And I says, fine, it's easy, become a Catholic. 
problem solved. And believe it or not, they're Catholic. <laughs> so it worked. <laughs> um, finally, um, the Eucharist commits us to the poor. Catechism Article 1397. Now, these points, seven of them, before I hand back to Eddie for another song, the Catechism in this teaching begins with a high mystical statement where the Eucharist unites us to Christ, but descends the mountain of grace until we get to the most humble call, which is a commitment to the poor. And but you could actually reverse these two. You could say that the union with Christ is actually at the bottom, it's the starting point. And then as we grow in our holiness, we become more and more committed to the poor, especially in evangelization, because a commitment to evangelization is a commitment to ministering to the poor in spirit. And physical poverty is one thing, but the worst possible thing is spiritual poverty. Physical poverty can be temporal. Spiritual poverty can actually be eternal if we do not evangelize souls. So, Eddie, over to you for our next song. All right, and uh, very fitting, I have here John Mitchell Talbot, and I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. All who eat this bread. more if anyone would like to call in and ask Derek a question it's 01223 375564 and we shall be waiting for you
This is Radio Maria. A very warm welcome back to Catechesis. I'm here on our regular Tuesday slot with our dear friend Derek Williams. Hi, Derek. Hello, Eddie. Hi. I wanted to ask a question myself concerning the Eucharist and um, what's the justification for the validity of the Eucharist if the priest himself isn't in a state of grace? Because the um, the liturgy doesn't depend upon the priest. Uh, his holiness and um, this is why the church teaches that the eucharist is done in persona christi and um, it's the action of christ the same as all the sacraments so um you know if we take the simple case of baptism uh, essentially uh, in in the if you're if a person is being baptized in an emergency or any other circumstance anyone can perform that baptism christian or not because it's the action of Christ. So all the sacraments are the action of Christ. That's baptism, Eucharist, confirmation, and marriage, holy orders, last rites, etc. They're all his action. So the the actual holiness of the priest um, is irrelevant in one sense. Now, if a priest um, is not holy, if his if a priest is in a state of mortal sin, then there's a certain efficaciousness that is missing to the to the liturgy okay because it's going to have an effect on the on on the way the liturgy is celebrated and his his communication with his parishioners yeah but it doesn't affect the eucharist itself and it doesn't affect confession either if you go to confession then you still receive absolution even if the priest isn't in a state of grace great well, thank you for clearing it up. That's always been um, <clears throat> one question on my mind. And uh, There you go. Yeah, there you go. You've answered it. So I um, much appreciate that as well. So I believe we're going into the book of Leviticus next. Is that correct? Um, we are. We are. I just want to just quote three lines from John chapter 6. By all means. be a big faux pas of mine not to do so. All right. And then I'm going to charge into the book of Leviticus. So this Leviticus chapter 6. And uh, Jesus is talking, it's a classic scripture on the Eucharist. Um, Jesus says in John 6, 27, do not labor for the food which perishes, <laughs> which is what we all do. But do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life. In other words, prepare yourself properly for the Eucharist, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him has God the Father set his seal. Then again, John 6, 32, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven. My father gives you the true bread from heaven, which is Christ. John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. 
He who comes to me shall not hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. What hunger and thirst is talking about? Spiritual hunger and spiritual thirst, because the Eucharist, as I said earlier, preserves, strengthens, and increases the life of grace. Okay, so those are three things which I wanted to just speak out about the Eucharist. I'm not going to go to Leviticus. This is chapter nine and ten, and it's because I just want to share something with you about um, receiving the Eucharist in a state of grace versus receiving it in a state of mortal sin. This is nothing original. This is from over a thousand BC. Okay, they've um, they're in the desert. Aaron's been ordained as a high priest. They're offering a sacrifice, so they've put an animal on the altar. Then Aaron lifted up his hands towards the people and blessed them. He came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings, which all foreshadowed the Eucharist. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting, which is where the candle stand is, the shewbread and the altar of innocence, and then the Holy of Holies is in the other tent. When they came out of the tent, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Fire came forth from before the Lord, consumed the burnt offering and the fat upon the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Okay. So Moses and Aaron have offered a sacrifice. It's all been done in accordance with the law of the Lord. And fire comes down from, from God's presence and consumes the sacrifice. Chapter 10. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it, laid incense on it, and offered unholy fire before the Lord. Why is it unholy? Because it hasn't been, it's not the sacrifice that God has invited them to offer in accordance with the law. Aaron's just done that. Now the dynamic duo are coming in, and they are offering unholy fire, such as he has not commanded them. Okay, get that. He has not commanded them. Yeah. So Jesus in the, in, in the last of the narratives gives us a commission to receive his body and receive his blood. And we are to be in a state of grace. Here, Nadab and Abihu are offering a sacrifice that has not been commanded. Fire comes forth from the presence of the Lord and devoured them. And they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. I will show myself holy among those who are near me, and before all the people I will be glorified. And Aaron, who had just witnessed his two sons being killed by God's fire, held his peace. Okay. Now, what what's this what's the connection with the Eucharist? Well, if you receive the Eucharist in a state of grace, all the blessings of the Eucharist come upon you, and the, and the life of grace grows within you and is fostered within you, and the blessings of God come. You are in communion with Christ. You are coming alive in Christ, more and more alive. You have his resurrection life in you. If people receive communion the Eucharist in a state of mortal sin, then it brings down a curse upon them, believe it or not. Paul cautions us against this and he says, why do you think so many of you are dying and are sick? Because you're not examining yourself before receiving the body and blood of Jesus. You see, God cannot be mocked. We think that people going to receive communion while in a state of mortal sin are getting away with something. They're not. And a wise priest 
we get this at the Catholic shrine or, or a lot. It's actually very, very good. Before they give out the Eucharist, and because we get so many non-Catholic pilgrims, they make an announcement. Catholic communion is for Catholics only. If you are either not a Catholic or you are Catholic not receiving communion, i.e. because you're not in a state of grace, then please come forward for a blessing. But don't receive the Eucharist because it is not for you. If you want to receive the Eucharist, become a Catholic or go to confession if you're Catholic not in a state of grace. Change your life if you want to receive the Eucharist. Okay, Because if you just come forward to receive the Eucharist and you're, you're pro-abortion or you're using contraception or you're um, living in a state of sin or of, of some sort or another, you haven't been to confession, um, go to then, then you can't receiving the Eucharist will not benefit you. Okay, it will not benefit you. Um, you, you can't just, but well, you can, you can't come forward and receive it. They, you know, there's the news about politicians who just received the Eucharist, even though their lives are questionable, it's not going to benefit them. You know, always recognize that God can't be mocked. The blessings of Christ are for those in a state of grace. All right, so. Uh, I think we have our final song coming up. And then what I'll do is I will conclude with the very last piece and a short prayer just to visit on a nice positive note. This is Let My Mortal Flesh, mortal flesh Keep Silent. Keep silence and with fear and trembling Feed the 
This is Radio Maria, and we've been listening to Derek Williams here on Catechesis, and we've just got a few minutes left, so I'm going to pass over the microphone to Derek to conclude this episode. You ready? So I've now switched to Luke 24, uh, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. I want you to bear in mind the last scripture I shared with you about the... High Priest Aaron and Moses making an offering, a sacrifice on the altar, and the fire comes from the Lord's presence and consumes it. And here Jesus is walking along the Emmaus with the, with the two disciples, and they stop, and he stays with them for a while. When he was at the table with them, he takes the bread, blessed, broke it, gave it to them. Their eyes were opened. They recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. And then they say to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us as he talked to us on the road while he opened to us the scriptures? So just as the fire came in the book of Leviticus 9 to consume the offering, so here again the fire comes from the Lord's presence and sets the hearts of the two disciples ablaze. And this is really what we're asking from Jesus. Lord, this is what we need from Jesus. We need the Lord to set our hearts ablaze. The Eucharist unites us to Christ. Christ's heart is ablaze with love. If we're going to be united to Christ, we need to be asking him, Lord, set my heart ablaze with the same fire with which your heart and the Immaculate Heart of Mary also burns so let me pray for you listener let me pray for all those who will listen to this live and this night on the recording and i ask you heavenly father in the name of jesus christ your son and through the intercession of the immaculate heart of mary as the people of god who are listening to this teaching receive these words i pray that your fire will kindle even more powerfully within their hearts. Help them, Heavenly Father, to draw closer to you and to your Son. Sanctify them by means of your word. Cause the word that has been heard and received to become a fire within them so that they won't just be on fire, but they will be fire. They won't just be united to your son, but they will be completely divinized and transformed into your likeness, which is your will for us, Lord. You will that we be completely divinized and transformed. So I pray that for everyone listening, Lord, that you will completely transform them and i pray for the grace even of transforming union in jesus name amen, amen.